morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. This will be our last time uh, meeting together at 1030. Next week, we will meet together uh, at 10 a.m. and everybody will be together uh, from the other service as well. And so praise the Lord. Mark chapter 2 is where we will begin this morning, uh, starting in verse 13. Before we begin this morning, uh, reading our text and praying for God to help us have understanding, I just want to remind us of what the message of Mark has been thus far and what it is intended to be. When we learn from the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark that he writes this for a reason, he intends to introduce us to Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, the first sentence of the book is, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Pretty big claim for the first sentence of the book, that this, this person, the main character of this book, is Jesus, the divine Son of God. That introduction is followed by several voices that basically say the same thing over and over again. John the Baptist saying, this is the one who is mightier than me, whose sandal I'm unworthy of untying. He is the one who will immerse people in the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus baptized the heavens tear open, and God the Father himself speaks in audible voice. As you see the Spirit communing with Jesus, you hear the words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The demons themselves, when Jesus is teaching with all authority in the synagogue at the end of chapter 1, cry out in fear, what have you to do with us? You are the Holy One of God. We've seen him heal sickness by the authority of his word. We've seen last week a paralytic man stand up and walk around. This Jesus is unlike anybody in the history of the world. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He is the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. And so I want to remind you this morning that as we progress through the Gospel of Mark, when we read stories about this Jesus and we, have, we see interactions of Jesus with others, that what we are seeing is an in-the-flesh manifestation of what God is like. That is, how He communicates with people, how He relates with His creatures. When we see what Jesus does, we see into the heart of a God that we cannot even fathom or comprehend. We see into the heart of a God who is eternal, who has always been, who is perfectly holy, who has all power and all knowledge and is, is perfect in every way. And to be personal to us, we see him in the flesh, thinking and acting and speaking with people much like us. And so as we begin this morning, in verses 13 through 17, let's just begin with a prayer. God, uh, help us uh, to see what you are like by seeing what Jesus does and says. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined 
at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you and we thank you for this text of Scripture. We praise, we praise you for what we see here. And we pray that you would help us to see it more clearly and help us to respond to it rightly. We pray for the miracle of speaking this morning and the miracle of understanding and applying to our lives true things about you and how it is that we are to emulate you in a lost and dark world, God. We pray uh, that you would speak in this moment uh, through this text you've preserved for us for 2,000 years that we might know you personally. So God, we pray, uh, be with us now, and we pray all of this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So Jesus, again, is back to his primary ministry of teaching the Word of God. I don't think I've ever noticed before in reading through the Gospel of Mark how just paragraph after paragraph, there's just sort of this marker, there's just this statement that what Jesus was doing was teaching. He was just over and over again proclaiming the Word of truth, so much so that Yes, his miracles drew a crowd, but the way that it's identified as drawing a crowd from the very beginning in Mark chapter 1 was that this man teaches like, like no one we've ever heard before. He teaches like someone who has authority. His, his words, when he speaks them, it's as if he is the one who declares it to be true, as if the source of truth is even in him. What Jesus is doing is, is proclaiming the word of truth, and people are flocking to him. Last week, we saw that Jesus was proclaiming the word from a living room. And, and what started out perhaps as a small group Bible study ended up with masses sort of crowding in the windows and in the doorways and out into the street and people uh, unable to get to him but so desperate to get to him that they claw through the mud ceiling and lower a paralytic man down in front of Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. They want to hear this man. And so as he speaks, the crowds grow. They're flocking to him, even moving with him from place to place hoping he does something amazing or speaks another true word. But the point of interest in this story is not how Jesus addresses the crowd. Rather, it's how Jesus stops and addresses an individual. An individual who's not a part of the crowd. An individual who had no interest in being a part of the crowd or listening to Jesus. The individual that Jesus addresses in this passage is not looking for Jesus. He's, he's not among them that's chasing him down to hear what he's got to say or to be healed by him. The, the crazy thing about this story is not that the man was looking for Jesus, but that it seems like Jesus was looking for the man. That Jesus goes to him. He, he, Jesus walking around with people following behind him sees a tax booth. Not an uncommon thing to see. And he sees a tax collector by the name of Levi. Roman tax booths 
would have been sort of scattered throughout the Roman Empire, taxing travelers as they moved from one province to another. They would have to pay taxes on whatever goods they're transporting, or perhaps even just to enter into the new province or to the new region. And the Roman tax system was both complex and very corrupt. This story is supposed to be shocking to the first century reader, and, and I don't think that I have ever really taken the time to, to ask the question why tax collectors got lumped in with the worst of the sinners throughout the New Testament. I mean, I know that many of us, we don't like smile and feel happy feelings when we think of the IRS, but I, I don't know that, I, I've never stopped to really ask, why are these tax collectors lumped in always? It's like in the same sentence, tax collectors and sinners. Like, what's such a big deal about Jesus seeing a tax collector and rather than just passing by or paying his dues and moving on, stopping to speak to him. So this week, as I was studying, I was really learning a lot and realizing the depth of the hatred that the Jewish people would have felt for the Roman tax collector. Rome was an occupying force. Remember that that the Jews in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas are suffering from Roman oppression. Rome had moved in and conquered their land and was now now extracting payment for their own presence, their own inconvenience. They're extracting payment from the people. But here's the thing with an occupying enemy, to extract taxes from the locals, um, it's very difficult when you don't speak the language, don't know the culture, and are not really familiar with what types of money the people are making. I mean, you want to tax them, but you're unfamiliar with the, the lay of the land if you're a Roman soldier. So what you need are people on the inside. What you need are ethnic Jews living in the towns who know the going rate for things, that know where the people are and what the people have. You need ethnic Jews who are willing to betray their own people and get rich doing it. So what the Romans did was they contracted out ethnic Jews who were willing to go against Jewish law to betray their own people and to get rich doing it. Now, now, put this in a context that perhaps is a little bit more familiar just because we've studied history. Think about uh, Nazi Germany occupying a enemy territory. And as you and your family are trying to survive, as they are uh, taxing you and as they are oppressing you, um, one of your own neighbors, one of your own friends, one of your own cousins becomes an informant for the regime. That's what tax collectors were. They became informants for the enemy. They, they were considered to be traitors. They turned their back on their own people. They turned their back on their own God. They aligned themselves with the pagan and sort of idolatrous regime of Rome. And, and in fact, we learn a lot about what the Jews thought about the tax collectors by reading some of their historical documents. So there's some historical traditions that Jewish teachers, uh, uh, sources that we have, like the Talmud or the Mishnah. And by studying those historical documents, it's not in scripture, but we can kind of get a feel for how people felt about tax collectors. Tax collectors, according to these documents, were disqualified as ever being a witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. They were not allowed to worship with uh, the Jewish people to hear God's word. They were a cause of disgrace for their family. If uh, somebody decided to be a tax collector, they were dead to the parents and the siblings. 
to touch a tax collector rendered a house unclean. So the same way that if you came in contact with a leper and you were declared unclean, unable to enter into the temple, same thing as a tax collector. You touch a tax collector, you're rendered unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors because it was seen as wicked money or evil money. We don't even want to do business with these people because they've betrayed us. It was ruled, and this is the hilarious one to me, it was ruled by the Jewish leaders at the time that it was, it was not actually a lie if you lied to a tax collector. It was not considered a sin, right? Thou shalt not lie applies to everybody, but if it's a tax collector, baby, you just lie to that sucker's face. There was an animosity to this group of people. And thus far in the story, we've, we've seen Jesus and how he's responded to the ceremonially unclean, but the unclean people Jesus has touched this far, has confronted, has, has, has gone up to. It's been like, like the leper or the demon-possessed man or the paralytic, people, people that were unclean by nature of their circumstances, uh, not necessarily their decisions, but the tax collector is unclean because of his own evil, wicked, unloving decisions. His greed, which takes over at the expense of his loved ones. So the question is, what will Jesus do when he comes across a person like this? Sure, you can heal leprosy, but what about a guy like this? Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Truth number one from this morning, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus welcomes the worst of sinners. I mean, the point of including this story at this point in the Gospel of Mark is, is to be, it's, it's to be a shocking moment. This was a shocking moment for everyone. I mean, did Jesus really just invite Levi, the tax collector, to become one of his disciples? Uh, I, I, have, has anybody been watching The Chosen? Has anybody seen that? The Chosen? Okay, I normally do not recommend films about Jesus or shows about Jesus because they're normally terrible. This one's not terrible. It's actually really good. It, it pulls your eyes kind of open and it helps you think about the context of the New Testament, which was written. And one of the dynamics in the Chosen series, um, which you can get on your phone, by the way, it's an app and you can stream it to your TV, just a little commercial for the Chosen. Uh, one of the things about it is that it shows the dynamic in which even the fishermen, who are pretty low on the totem pole in society, even the fishermen who are following Jesus are mad that Jesus called a tax collector. <laughs> Because in this, in this moment, when Jesus says, follow me, Jesus doesn't just go up to this guy and say, stop it. You're a sinner. Jesus doesn't walk up to this guy and just say, repent. You need to change your ways. What Jesus does, he invites him to be a follower. He invites him not just to quit sinning. This, he says, come with me. Join me. Follow me. Come be a part of what the Messiah has come to do. It's not just stop sinning. It's, it's join us now. Follow me. Take up a new profession, a new purpose in life altogether. And he did. 
one of the, sometimes you can get frustrated uh, with the New Testament. That sounds sinful, right? But I can get frustrated with the New Testament because I'm like, surely a lot more happened in conversation than follow me. And he just got up and was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I mean, there's like a moment here, right? I mean, I mean, when it says that Levi did, I mean, this man leaves everything. He leaves his riches, his wealth, his comfortable life. He, he doesn't put in a two-week notice with his Roman superior. Who, who, who could punish him probably pretty severely for just walking out on his post and them not making their tax money for the day. But Levi leaves all this behind and he, and he follows Jesus. And the crazy thing is, is we now know Levi by a different name. Several people in the Bible go by two names for one reason or another, but we know Levi as Matthew. One commentator said that it's possible that Levi changed his name to Matthew because he didn't want people to know him as Levi the tax collector anymore. But whatever the case is, we know Levi as Matthew, meaning that this guy is the one who wrote down the first book in our New Testaments. I mean, God went on to use this guy to write down the Sermon on the Mount, (laughs) where we get so much of what it means to live as a Christian. It was Levi who would write down the words that we remind ourselves of every single Sunday morning. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded, and I will be with you to the ends of the age. Amen. Levi heard those words, and it was Levi who wrote them down. How sweet those words must have been, because if Jesus had not made a disciple in him, where would Matthew have been in his life? Where would his life have taken him? This story is a picture of what Jesus does. He takes the worst of sinners, and he puts them to work in the kingdom of God. He takes the people who who are seemingly unusable, (laughs) and he uses them beyond their previous comprehension. He takes people that the world deems as unsavable, and he doesn't just save them, he leads them to help see hundreds and thousands of others saved. So I just want to pause right there because uh, there's just a a takeaway in the middle of the sermon right here. Because if you're here this morning and you feel like you don't fit in with the churchy crowd. And if you think things in your mind like, like if the people in this room were to really know what I've done. Where I've been. What's going on in my mind even now. If they really knew, I would not be welcome here. If you think things like, like. God could never use me to make a disciple, to be on mission for the Lord, to have an ongoing relationship with God. All that feels sort of out of step or out of reach because the depths of my past, present wickedness. If that's you and you feel that this morning, you're in the right place at the right time hearing the right message. Because, Because according to this testimony of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just tolerate people like you. Jesus actually comes for people like you. He calls people like you. He, he, he calls people like you to, to not just stop what you're doing, but to join him in what he's doing. 
The work of Jesus is so radical, so transformational that he takes someone with the greed and the lack of care for another person in the world, like a, like a first century tax collector, Levi, and then he uses him to write books of the Bible. <laughs> Jesus approaches the worst of sinners and he says, follow me. This just little narrative is just a little microcosm of, of what Jesus came to accomplish. That is to, to make grace abound over all of our sin. He, he came. This is why Jesus came. He came to take the fullness of the wrath of God on himself at the cross for tax collectors. That, that God might unleash the fullness of his grace upon those who believe. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the rich of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. We have an invitation to follow a Jesus who welcomes the worst of sinners. Now, I love what happens next in the story because the story doesn't just end with Levi following Jesus. There's a quick scene change to what seems to be the aftermath of Jesus's calling Levi. So, so we move from meeting Levi on the road to now a scene in Levi's home where he apparently has sent out some invitations. Word has gotten out that the miracle-working, truth-teaching Messiah is welcoming people like us. Mark chapter 2, verse 15. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. So now you don't just have a meeting with Jesus on the street and an isolated invitation to one tax collector. Now you got a tax collector party going on, right? Now apparently Levi's hosting a get-together with all his friends whom Mark identifies as a big old group of tax collectors and then just sinners, now, the way that Mark uses the word sinners, we, we're kind of more familiar with Christian doctrine, so we say things like, oh, we're all sinners, you know, uh, we have all have sin, but, but in first century context, uh, uh, religious Jews of the day would designate a certain category of person that they would put into the category of sinners. These are lifestyle type sinners. So when, when, when Jews of the day, they, they would sort of put in a category of sinner, they would think prostitute, godless sort of um, tax collector, turned their back, adulterer, turned their back on the ways of the Lord entirely. So this is a group, this is, this, is, this is a motley crew happening around the table in Levi's house. This is, this is a group of people that, that, that it'd be, you'd be uncomfortable to walk in the room with and share conversation. To even eat with such a sinner was considered unlawful fellowship. But here's Jesus, not yelling at these people to repent with a bullhorn and signs, which is not normally helpful. But he's sitting around the table, reclining in their home, 
and eating a meal with them. Now, this is a remarkable thing to consider. If anybody in the society of the day would have thrown a good old wholesome tax collector party, it's a weird thing. Anybody who did that would have been a strange thing. But let's remember what I reminded us of at the beginning of this sermon. This isn't just anybody. <laughs> this, is, this is the Holy One of God. This is God in the flesh, in whom there is no sin, who is totally righteous, whom God the Father speaks down out from heaven and says, I'm pleased with him. And, and here's Jesus kicking back at a table in a room full of sinners, God in the flesh choosing to be in this room, in this place, at this time, with these people. What an astounding thing to think about. That God himself will be found in a room like that. On purpose. We've already said that Jesus welcomes the worst of sinners to follow him, but I want you to notice, or think through how this should influence even our own ministry method. This is truth number two. Jesus fellowships with the worst of sinners for their transformation. Now, every word of that truth is important. Jesus is not afraid to have a meal with what is considered to be the worst of worst sinners in society. In fact, it seems like having the meal with them is the strategy. He's meeting Men and women, where they are in the depth of their sin, and he's, he's showing them compassion, talking, eating, teaching the things of God. And, and I think that just this scene should challenge us in two ways when it comes to how we live our lives. Firstly, we should not be afraid to fellowship with any kind of sinner. Our homes, as Christian people, our homes are not safe houses where we escape the outside world and protect ourselves. For the Christian person, our homes should be refugee centers where we invite the outside world in to show them the love of Jesus. Now, I say this um, having, having been convicted this week. Because when I look at Jesus' ministry method, I think to a time earlier in my ministry life, I've been in ministry um, just over 10 years and I think of uh, uh, a time earlier in my ministry life where there was just a zeal about me, there was an optimism about me, where every single meeting I had with somebody was an opportunity, every conversation was an opportunity to lead someone to Jesus. Like, like there was a time, even as the pastor of this church, when I was sitting in a little office over there and you get a knock at the door, like, like excitement filled me, zeal, because God might use me today to do something in someone's life. But over time, I think this happens to all of us, after you get burned a few times, after you get taken advantage of a few times, you're lied to a few times, you develop a little bit of a jadedness, a little bit of a bitterness, a little bit of a pessimism that people will really change, that God will really work. And this week, as I was 
looking at this, I, was, I, I, I was, had to confess to the Lord, I am not as zealous as I once was to engage in this type of ministry. And when I think about this, I, I mean, I make a lot of assumptions about people. But Jesus knew, without a shadow of a doubt, he knew the depths of other people's wickedness. I mean, he, he knew the depths of their evil thoughts as they were thinking them. Jesus had every right and every reason to avoid people who rejected God. Yet Jesus goes to the ones from whom our perspective are the farthest gone and hardest to reach. And I just wonder how much of Jesus do we miss when we fail to embrace the type of ministry that Jesus embraced. I mean I, I mean, I think there is glory to be found, joy to be had in the kind of fellowship, the kind of vulnerable compassion to people that are different from us, the people that let us down, that there's, there's a type of joy to be had in that kind of ministry that is not to be had anywhere else. And I pray that we as a church, man, that we would never, ever sort of just write someone off as being too lost or uh, our, that our evangelistic efforts would be fruitless or discipleship efforts would be fruitless. May we be people of long-suffering and patience and gentleness and lowliness and community so that God might be glorified when, when all the tax collectors and sinners of St. Rose Avenue and Oak Street and beyond are coming to faith in Jesus. May we live types of ministries and, and run types of homes so that people at the corner store right here off of St. Rose Avenue are in the church praising Jesus and people are wondering what happened to that dude. May we live lives and have our goals and life and ministries aligned with the goals and ministries of Jesus. So firstly, I think we just learn from Jesus here what, what ministry is supposed to be all about. But secondly, and importantly, I think that we have to remember from Jesus' example that to fellowship with, welcome, and show compassion on people who are living in sin is not the same thing as affirming and overlooking their sin as inconsequential. I'm going to say that again. To fellowship with, welcome, and show compassion on people in sin is not the same thing as affirming and overlooking their sin as inconsequential. Jesus fellowshiped, welcomed, and showed compassion on these people, and this is why the whole truth is important, for the purpose of seeing them transformed. Okay, so his aim was not just to make people feel better about their sin or accepted despite their sin. His aim was to see them transformed from their sinning. Jesus did not walk up to Levi and say, I love you and affirm you no matter what you choose to be. If tax collecting makes you happy, do what your heart desires. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus graciously goes up to Levi when nobody else would, and Jesus calls Levi, follow me. What's he saying? Leave the tax collecting behind. There's a better life to be had. What is he saying when he says, follow me? He's saying what the message of the kingdom of God is. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Follow me. 
in all of our compassion, in all of our welcoming sinners, in all of our meeting people where they are at, we meet them where they are at with every intention of seeing them be delivered from where they are at. We don't meet people where they're at so we can just sit with them where they're at forever. Where they're at's leading them to hell. So yes, we, we meet them where they're at, praying and pleading and compassionately speaking truth so that we can see them leave where they're at. We welcome the alcoholic into our lives with love and we graciously try to get him to give up the alcohol that's destroying him. We welcome the sexually broken, the adulterer, the addicted to pornography, the drug addict, the greedy, the lazy. We welcome them all with open arms, with the love of Jesus, while honestly communicating that these things are killing you. And see, the problem is our society has redefined what love is. Love equals acceptance and agreement and affirmation of even my own decisions. That's not what love is. Jesus walks the line perfectly. He eats with sinners while at the same time calling them to turn from their sin. And the message is still the same today. Faith, repent, follow Jesus, turn from sin toward Jesus. If we welcome the sinners around our table like Jesus did, but we never share the truth like Jesus did, we are not loving like Jesus. In fact, we will inevitably lead people away from Jesus in the name of love. And we will be wrong. And the consequences will be eternal. If I had to define love according to the New Testament, I'd define it the way that Romans 5, 8 describes it. That God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is this sacrifice of self for the ultimate good of another even if they're not that lovely <laughs> jesus gave himself for our most ultimate good our eternal salvation and unity to god we give ourselves we give our comfort we give our way of life for the most ultimate good of others and the most ultimate good is that they know god <laughs> and walk in his ways which lead to true joy we have hard conversations we don't want to have. We swallow our pride when we don't want to. We do it for the most ultimate good of others, which is to lead them away from the sin that destroys and to the God who heals. And if we embrace love like that, we will be out of step with the expectations of society. We'll get hated on both sides of the tracks. We will, we will fellowship with those that the self-righteous people say we shouldn't fellowship with. But then we'll share a message that the unrighteous people say we shouldn't share. And we will, we will walk in such a way and love in such a way where we don't exactly fit in anywhere. To, to, to follow Christ is to not exactly fit in anywhere except with other people who are legitimately following Christ. <laughs> it is to walk in a way that is otherworldly. Jesus was no stranger to walking out of step with the expectation of the society. So if you love people this way, that is you speak the truth to them in love, but you also love the people whom they, others say you shouldn't love, you'll get it from both sides. Jesus did. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? A particular religious group, the scribes, were those who 
who wrote down or they copied the law of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were a niche group of Jews who developed just this concept or this idea that, that following God was a matter of rule following, that that's, that's what it was. And so the Old Testament law is our rule book, and so let's add more rules that sort of surround the rules God gave us to keep us from even getting close to breaking those rules. And what they did is they missed the whole point of the law, which is to love your neighbors yourself and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and strength. But, but they build these laws around it and they, they pride themselves in their ability to be righteous and to be set apart from the unrighteous. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from an Aramaic word which just means to separate oneself. And so here's the, the more powerful group of the day and Jesus is doing exactly the opposite of what they say you're supposed to do to be walking with God. And so they start murmuring about it. And I don't exactly know when I look at the passage, it's hard to tell. Like, did they just like walk by and like look into the window, see the tax party happening and see Jesus in the middle of it and sort of like speak in? Or did they hear about it and the conversation happens later? Whatever the case, there's murmuring going on. Jesus is a crazy party animal and he's breaking the law. And Jesus hears this is happening going on and Jesus sort of confronts what's being said. Verse 17. That's what Jesus says to their uh, questioning. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, even in that analogy, Jesus identifies himself as, as the doctor coming to the sick, not just to hang out with the sick spiritually, but to heal them, right? To do some spiritual surgery. And so, so he's not just hanging out with sinners. He's, he's hanging out with the sinners to, to root out cancer, to, to, to bring them to the light. And so even the analogy itself is not just, hey, I'm just here to hang out with sinners. No, it's to, it's to do surgery on them. But the point of the analogy is that there's really two groups of people in the world. They're the people who, who are sick and they know they're sick, and they're desperate for healing. And there's people that are sick, and they don't think they're sick. So therefore, they do not go to the doctor. And this, this leads us to our third and final truth. The self-righteous do not welcome Jesus. So if Jesus welcomes the worst of sinners, praise the Lord. But the self-righteous do not welcome Jesus. Jesus, there's two types of people on a sliding scale in this room and around the world. On the one side, there are some who feel so unworthy, so unusable, so irredeemable that to follow Jesus or be used by Jesus at all sounds like impossible. To those people, Jesus' words of grace seem too good to be true. They cannot bring themselves to believe that God would really just forgive all of their sin, all of their grossness in their life. And some never come to Jesus because of a refusal to believe how good it is. To those, Jesus says, come to me and find rest. And many do. They come and they know they need something so desperately and they come to Jesus and they find salvation. They find healing. Like, like this is what Jesus came. It's for the sick who know they're sick. But then there's another group of people. And that group does not think they need Jesus very much at all. They're not prostituting themselves. 
They're not killing anyone. They're not stealing from anyone. They're nice people, moral people, people who don't get in trouble with the law, pretty truthful, good jobs, good families, nice home, good friends, going to hell because they don't know God or honor him as God, but rather their niceness and their goodness and all the things have become their God. And Jesus, describing these people, knows that for anyone who has their own pathway to righteousness, anyone who doesn't think they need a Savior, it is they that (laughs) they're even in a more dangerous position than those who know they need something. In a lot of ways, self-righteousness is more dangerous because it blinds the eyes to the need of a Savior at all. It dismisses the cross of Jesus Christ as unnecessary to feel that that's a good story for somebody else, but I don't need it. The divine Son of God bled and died on a cross for your sins, and you say, well, that was pointless for me because I don't need it. And so, we, as Christians trying to evangelize in a world with very much both types of people, to, to those who feel that they're too sinful, we have to convince them how amazing God's grace is, right? But to those who feel that they don't need grace at all, we've got to convince them that they are too sinful to be saved on their own. And they need a Jesus who came for them. To, this is the crowd Paul often spoke to. I mean, in the book of Romans, he, he writes things like, Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you'll escape the judgment of God? I mean, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing? God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance. Well, because of your heart and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the type of person Paul often spoke to, trying to convince them that Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're in trouble unless you turn to this Jesus. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The message of Christianity is that we're all really sick. <laughs> and we all really need a physician. But we've been offered a really good health plan with a really good doctor. He promises not only to make you better, but to make you brand new. He promised not only to heal you temporarily of some of the symptoms with a nice little pill to take once a day, but to make you new forever and all of eternity. Jesus welcomes the worst of sinners, fellowships with the worst of sinners for their transformation, but it's the self-righteous that don't welcome Jesus. So, how are we to respond to this text. Let me leave you with three takeaways. Number one, number one, invite sinners to your table for their transformation. There is joy to be had when you live your life with open hands to your safety, your finances, your schedule, when you hold them loosely knowing that God can do as he pleases. There's joy to be had when you pour out your life for the most important things in the universe. And so let me just encourage you, even this summer, as we gather together in small groups and homes, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, across this uh, parish in different locations, let me just encourage you, even this summer, make a plan to recline with some sinners. Now, that's a weird thing for a pastor to say. Throw a tax collector party. But do so 
for the sake of their transformation. Not for you to join in (laughs) and become one, but that you might lead them out and they become something new. Number two, beware of the sin of self-righteousness. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith, meaning we contribute nothing to the glory of the good news that Jesus accomplished for us. It's a humbling belief that God saved me, though I did not deserve it. Beware of drifting into a position where you think that you deserve the salvation you've been given or really anything from God Almighty. We have no grounds for boasting because all of us are tax collectors who received a gracious call from Christ. Follow me. And lastly, trust in the righteousness of Jesus. This is Romans all over again, right? What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous. (laughs) Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinner. Well, what's Romans say? There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. (laughs) I didn't come to call people who wrongly think that they are righteous. I came to call the ones that recognize that they need a Savior, and I'm Him. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus, because there is no righteousness apart from Jesus. Uh, In a minute, we're going to sing a song um, to close our, our time together. Uh, which is traditionally a song that we sing uh, at, at Christmas with a spin on it. Uh, you've all heard the song, uh, Come All Ye Faithful. It's a beautiful song. It's a good song. Um, but uh, there's a twist on, on this particular song that helps us to see a different aspect of the gospel. The song is entitled, Come All Ye Unfaithful. That we come as people who have been unfaithful, (laughs) as people who are unworthy, as people who don't have it all together. We come to Jesus because we don't have it all together, (laughs) and he's the one who has it together, and so we're just going to sing that song as a celebration that Christ was born for the unfaithful. Christ was faithful on my behalf. He was faithful for me because I haven't been faithful, and then we're just going to celebrate that his grace is more than all of our sins. So let's pray and respond in song. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for this picture of a meal with sinners. We thank you for the meal to come that you have promised us. The feast of heaven where sinners of all types will come together having been made clean. Having um, no desire to sin any longer. And Father, we pray. Help us to rejoice over these realities. Help us to minister um, in light of these realities. Help our ministries uh, reflect the ministry of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.